Welcome to episode 17 of the Philosopher Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Adrian Zero about the C++ standard library for parallelism and concurrency, HPX. Hi, Adrian. Thank you for being with us today. Could you please introduce yourself and explain some of your work as the scientific program coordinator? Sure. Um, my name is Adrian Sirio, and as mentioned, I am the scientific program coordinator for the Stellar Group at LSU. And, well, essentially, I kind of function as a COO for the group. Uh, Hartmut uh, basically kind of comes up with the vision of what he wants to do and where we want to go, and I help make him that a reality. What is the current focus of your research group at LSU? So the main focus of the Stellar Group at LSU is developing um, HPX. As you mentioned, this is a C++ uh, standard library for parallelism and concurrency. And we uh, focus on both local and distributed parallelism, essentially. Yeah, so we develop that, and within that context, we have several projects that are funding our work, which utilize HPX. So, for instance, we have a project called Phylanx, which is where we are developing a uh, framework, essentially, to do machine learning, which uses HPX underneath. We additionally have uh, grants for Flexi, which is a project that's being developed at Sandia I'm sorry, not Sandia, uh, Los Alamos National Labs. And we are developing a backend for that, as well as some work on resiliency as well. Okay. Uh, as your main focus is uh, HPX, what would be your 30-second elevator pitch for HPX? The 30-second elevator pitch is that HPX is a runtime system that enables users to work with an API which is familiar to them, namely the C++ uh, concurrency model, in order to do parallel and distributed computing. And that's, in, in a nutshell, that's, that's what we do. Okay, we'll take a step back for a moment for those who may not know what is parallel computing. We'll talk a bit more general about this. Do you know when the basic concept of parallel computing was introduced in scientific computing and how did it become so important since then? So I don't know the, the full history. I know that a lot of the ideas that we actually implement are actually very old. So for instance, as those of you who are familiar with the C++11 and continuing uh, standards, we utilize uh, futures heavily. And futures were developed way back, I believe, like in the 70s. And at the time, however, we didn't, the hardware didn't really enable us to be able to utilize them efficiently. And so as far as parallelism and, and computing, um, I believe the idea is actually pretty old, but only as of today do we, one, have the need and two, have the the technology essentially to do it efficiently. So why is it important right now or why do we have so much emphasis on it now is largely due to the fact that we aren't able to continue to see the scaling that Moore's law has promised us without starting to do parallel computing. So for the longest time, you know, 
everybody could just kind of sit back and just watch as, you know, the hardware developers are like, oh, we can increase clock speeds. And then suddenly that kind of stopped working. And, you know, oh, we can, you know, continue to put more transistors on a chip. And that, that kind of, you know, stopped working because we started, you know, melting the chips. So this forced the community to have to start looking uh, to more complex solutions, such as parallel computing. Um, specifically, what we started to see was uh, multiple cores in each machine. And when you start having multiple cores, you now need multiple instructions. And that's kind of where we started really doing things in parallel. In addition, uh, you can also kind of extend this to distributed computing in that you know, as we've figured out more and more things that we can do to kind of, or more problems that we can solve, people started having problems that were way too big to fit on one machine. And so the need arose, you know, to say, hey, we could split this problem down into pieces and then distribute that across multiple machines and run them all at the same time. And that'll allow us to kind of receive our, the answer that we're looking for. And so those kind of two forces uh, really gave birth to the work that we're doing, which, as I mentioned, is has there's been a lot of work done in this area. We're just kind of the another incarnation of a solution to this problem. Okay. Do you have any current day example of problems that we could not solve without parallel computing or distributed computing? I mean, a simple example is one of another project that we're working on here, which is a astrophysics simulation. And the amount of data that you have to crunch essentially is way too big to fit on one machine. So you have to distribute that data out and then work on that in parallel in order to simulate uh, two stars that are ro uh, rotating around each other, for instance. Um, and there's many other types of problems, which a lot of times due to just data constraints, as far as like the, the size of the data, causes it to where you have to run these things on multiple machines. In addition, though, there's also applications which just rely on, um, are very time sensitive. And so in order to continue to get speed up, you have to add more compute resources in order to process the data fast enough. So, I mean, there, there's many, many, many things, and I hesitate to even try to start creating a list, but those are just kind of some examples of why you would want to do things in parallel and distributed. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton of examples. In the electrical uh, design of, uh, of CPUs, we are closing in on our physical ability to make smaller and faster CPUs due to physical limits we're hitting the quantum barriers. Uh, parallelism seems to be taking the leading role in improving computers' performance at the moment, or in the recent years at some point uh, there are other factors than simple uh, scaling of the single cpu that needs to be taken into account i mean like communications between cpus and interprocess there seem to be the bottleneck uh, how far can we scale and is there still a lot to gain from parallelism i'm gonna go i'm gonna start where i think you're asking this question <laughs> so there are limits to how far we can scale in two cents. First off, many of your listeners may be familiar with Amdahl's law, which is essentially a law or a description of the reality that even as we parallelize our codes, even just starting the first thread, um, having that one thing 
that's run in serial, that's going to cause the whole application to only be able to run as fast as it takes to run that one portion. And this law basically states that, you know, 20 times speed up is about what we can hope to get by using parallelism. So there is kind of a theoretical cap on that. Um, however, there is a lot of room for improvement. And I believe that the second part of your question, though you might want to repeat that for me, uh, refers to where do I see kind of how we can continue to extract this parallelism? Or how much gain could we still expect from parallelism? Well, I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of an open question, which is somewhat dependent upon the problem that you're trying to solve. Some problems, uh, there's lots you can gain from parallelism, um, especially if you're looking at what we're doing, which is like uh, doing more fine-grained tasks. So essentially, in, in your application, there are certain sections of your application which uh, you can do only in, in sequential, right? I mean, I guess in the simplest case, you know, you can only write to, you know, a certain memory location with one with one thread. Otherwise, your results are going to be meaningless. So at the end, you kind of have certain things that have to be done sequentially. And so in the end, if you add up all those sequential operations, that's going to be the limit of what the, the max speed you can get. However, most applications that we write now are nowhere near that fine-grained. A lot of it you know, we, we struggle with trying to make these things work in parallel and not have the different operations step on each other's toes. So there's a huge amount of opportunity to kind of break down our applications into smaller pieces and then allow those all those pieces to run concurrently. Now, the, the kind of other side of this is that the paradigms that we're using to break our applications down somewhat constrain us to what we can do. So there are some, you know, paradigms which enforce certain areas of the code where you have to go back into sequential. And so, for instance, if you look at, you know, kind of the fork join model, which is a very popular model, and when you talk about parallel computing, where essentially you have one thread which then spawns several tasks that each run concurrently. However, at the end, after all those tasks are finished, you have to wait until all the tasks are finished and then do what you call a join. Essentially, kind of like make certain that everybody's done and then, you know, commit whatever data you have or something to that effect. And that what that means is that you essentially are forcing the application developer to have these little sequential sections in your code, which was, of course, a much bigger step up from what we had to do before, but it still kind of enforces this this sequential barrier, which, again, according to Amdahl's law, means that, hey, you add up all those sequential parts and you're not going to be able to go any faster than that. So developing better ways of exposing parallelism and the ability to do things concurrently uh, is still very important. And there are still many ways in which we can better expose these operations. Okay. And where do you see parallel computing going in the next decades? So our team um, is of the belief that multi-core is here to stay. Um, we are not able 
at the moment to really to make our our you know we can't increase the the clocks the clock cycles um and we can't put more transistors on the chip so what we really think is going to be happening is that we're going to continue in this multi-core error and basically you know if you look at like um architectures kind of like the xeon phi even though that particular architecture has been discontinued for the moment we see many vendors starting to put more and more chips on on you know one motherboard and we see gpus starting to get more and more intelligent so we kind of see um this kind of convergence with this mini core that kind of has this maybe some of the cores may not be as smart as the others you might have like a one core that's coordinating work and a bunch of dumber cores which essentially are just executing things um or perhaps we might see something a little bit more like what the xeon phi had where you have just basically uh you know 200 (laughs) threads running concurrently on you know one machine um, which are using full-blown processors. But we definitely see that multi-core is here and is here to stay. Okay. In your 30-second elevator pitch, you talked briefly about C++ standards and different versions of standards. As a non-programmer, I'm not really well-versed into those. Uh, what do they define? Because for me, C++ is a defined language. Like There's a, a syntax and features of the language. Uh, what are the standards and what do they bring? So the C++ standard essentially defines practices and functions that are commonly used and then puts them together into a a standard library. I kind of think about the C++ standards committee as kind of being the arbitrator between the main library developers, the compiler um, people, and the application user community. And because in order for application developers to have better tools to their disposal, they need both uh, library and compiler support. And the compiler, you know, will be supporting the, the libraries. And so the libraries need certain, you know, features or information from the compiler and vice versa in order to kind of support everything together. So when we talk about the C++ standard, we're typically talking about the C++ standard library. And so when you talk about things like C++11, for instance, they introduced you know, the concept of a standard future, right? And the, the standard itself just defines different features and what guarantees those features have. So for instance, with standard futures, a future is an object, and it points to it has you know two pointers one to some shared data and another to a state and whenever the data has become ready then you can call a function um, which will return that data to you and the standard defines that interface and then it is up to the compiler vendors and those who develop the C++ uh, standard libraries to actually implement those things. But the 
community or like the standards community itself is kind of the intersection of these three groups. Does that answer? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So it's like adding new abstraction layers on top of features, like uh, instead of writing a, uh, I'll, I'll use example, a for loop or for a specific mm -hmm. application. So you have a different kind of loop. I don't know what, <laughs> anyway, uh, maybe a bad example, but you have a, diff a different kind of uh, loop predefined for a specific application that you can call in a different way. And they're adding that with the standards. So, I mean, one example would be that uh, ranges, with, well, ranges would be an example. So traditionally you have, you know, for some integer which starts off at zero, you, you know, incre increment that integer until it is less than or equal to some value, right? That's the standard way of doing uh, a for loop in C++. Um, however, uh, the community started uh, developing this concept called a range, saying, which is very similar to, to Python, right? You say, hey, for this, for this object, do something for each of those things. And so in C++, they developed this, this concept of a range, and then they proposed that to the standards community, and it has become standardized. And so now you can, uh, you have this concept of a range, which is like from, well, basically a, a subset of elements within a, a data structure, and you can pass that around. So originally we didn't have that concept. You had to do loops a certain way, And then later someone was like, well, hey, why do we need to do it this way? We could totally have this new abstraction, which would then allow us to express our codes like this. And then that idea was then presented and debated in the standards community. And they were able to come up with an API, which then the compiler vendors were able to implement. And then it's in, you know, common usage. Okay. So C++ is still evolving with those new standards, those new versions, those addition, those new features. Absolutely. Okay. Now we'll get back to HPX and parallel computing, more specifically about HPX, which is based on the, uh, the standards. Where does it fit exactly with the standards? What is special about it? HPX? Where does it shine uh, in regards to uh, how does it implement those standards better than other solutions, let's say? Ah, so this is, this is interesting for me. <laughs> so HPX, you can think of it as an extension of certain aspects of the standard, right? So in HPX, one of the things that makes us shine is that we are standards conformant. So for instance, we have HPX features, which have exposed the same functionality as standard features. We have HPX async, which is, you know, exposing the same sort of API as standard async. And there's a whole list of, of these functions, which we essentially have implemented inside of HPX. And the idea is that we've taken that implementation, but we've extended it from what in C++ they call it the abstract machine, which essentially is a one local entity where you know all the memory is contiguous and that sort of stuff. And we've extended that to where you can use those same APIs, but in a distributed context. 
So HPX provides the infrastructure which allows you to say, hey, I want you to launch a new thread using HPX async, but instead of launching that new thread on my machine, like a std async would do, I want you to launch that thread on node 42 on the other side of the machine. And so you can really think about HPX as just extending the C++ concurrency model, really, into the distributed context. Okay, so which other software solutions next to HPX are available to help with development of parallel computing code? So when you talk about parallel computing, uh, there's several options uh, on the market. The probably most famous of which is OpenMP. OpenMP is a local parallelism library, which allows you to say, um, basically define regions of your code that you want to do in parallel. And I mean, they have simple things like uh, parallel for and, and that sort of stuff. There's several other libraries out there that let you do distributed computing um, and parallel computing, such as uh, Charm++, um, MPI. Uh, there's also some projects like OpenShim and StarPU in Europe, as well as Uinta, uh, Legion. So it's an it's a interesting and crowded field. But each of these libraries kind of focus on slightly different things. So I think the most famous distributed computing interface is the messing passing interface MPI. How would you compare HPX to MPI? So MPI is a well-established library for distributed computing. As the name suggests, it is, you know, message passing interface. It's this idea that, you know, you can write an application where you have regions of your code that everybody is essentially running the same code. And then uh, you have moments where you communicate or, you know, hand over data to other nodes and then continue doing some calculations and then communicate and then continue doing some calculations. Um, that was kind of the original MPI, you know, mode of operation. Now, over the years, MPI has continued to grow and develop to where you could do things like such as like one-sided communication and many, many, many more features. However, our team still kind of sees that MPI still requires or still encourages users to kind of move in this sort of lockstep where you say, okay, everybody, everybody do this then, you know, let's communicate, then, you know, and you can write codes that are very similar uh, to HPX codes in MPI. However, we feel that the abstractions don't let you do that as easily as we believe that they could be done. So in some sense, we do very similar things, but we, I believe that our abstractions are different and we hope to be more efficient for application developers. So... One of the HPX features, uh, it's easy to use, it's highly optimized and very portable. What makes HPX easy to use for application programmers? The biggest thing that makes HPX easy to use is that we expose the C++ concurrency model, uh, or at least the API of that concurrency model. And so if you're familiar with 
uh, C plus plus eleven fourteen, and how you do parallelism in in that uh, mode, then you are immediately familiar with how to do your parallelism with HPX, and that's it's it's really its strongest strength. Many other solutions out there require people to have to learn a whole new API or a whole new way of doing things. But for us, if you're familiar with C++, then you immediately will know what's what's going on and how to how to take advantage of the solutions that we offer. So you would say if someone wants to start to use HPX, it's beneficial to have some basic knowledges in C++, or is it really difficult to use HPX without any yeah, knowledge in C++? What we definitely say, and what we have definitely noticed, is that when people have uh, issues with HPX, it's normally not an HPX issue, it's normally a C++ issue. A lot of times, if you're unfamiliar with how to expose certain concepts in C++, that is what's going to trip you up. And so, yes, knowing C++ is definitely kind of goes hand in hand with understanding HPX. Okay. How do you think new scientists will discover HPX? Like if... If they, if they get into C++, it might be easy to use, but it might not be, like, it's not, it, it is a, a, a package, it's, it is a library that you need to add to your project to use it. How do you think you can improve the discoverability of that kind of libraries for new programmers, new scientific programmers? We don't envision that most domain scientists will use HPX directly. HPX is pretty low level, as many C++ applications are. The way that we see most domain scientists encountering HPX is actually through what we would consider application frameworks or libraries which utilize HPX underneath. So, for instance, uh, one of our collaborators in Germany uh, develops a library called libgeodecomp. And this particular library does is a, it's a stencil library, and it, our collaborator eventually actually extended it to where it did several more things. But at its heart, that's where it started. And so we see that we imagine that um, domain scientists would probably come into contact with libraries such as LDD and use its semantics, and underneath, it's going to be taking advantage of the parallelism that's exposed by HPX. Another project that we're working on here as, that I mentioned before is Phylanx. And Phylanx will have a uh, Python front end, which then is underneath, transforms into code that can run on HPX. And so we see that domain scientists would actually be coding in Python, a language that is much more, much easier to grapple with. Um, And then the the underbelly is all handled by HPX. Okay, that, that makes it clearer. One thing we're still missing is the argument that HPX is very portable. So on which operating, operating systems can I install and run HPX? Um, just about all of, definitely all of the common ones. So we run on Linux, we run on Mac, we run on Windows, we run on BlueJean. Uh, software stack. We also are running on power. So pretty much uh, you name it, we have it, <laughs> unless it's really esoteric. 
And that kind of goes, again, with uh, the operating systems that, that they support. And as far as architectures, we run on everything from as small as a uh, Raspberry Pi all the way up to, you know, cutting-edge architectures, such as the Nice Landing Machine at uh, NERSC. Uh, regarding HBX, what are your personal contributions, your past contributions to the project, and where do you contribute at the moment in the project? So primarily, my contributions to the team are administrative. I have dabbled a little bit in it, where I started looking at um, checkpointing and implementing some um, some features that makes that a little bit easier, as well as here and there, I just implemented a few things just because I could. <laughs> okay, we forgot to ask if HBX supports hardware accelerator cards like NVIDIA GPUs or Intel Phi cards. So we did mention Intel uh, Phi cards, and we do support those. We have support for managing GPUs. So the tricky thing with GPUs, right, is that they can't at the moment run straight up C++ code. So we have developed a few solutions which kind of help our users still utilize these machines. So the first thing that we developed was a library that we called HPXCL. And what this library did was that it hid the or encapsulated the GPU um, behind a HPX object, which you could hand a either OpenCL kernel or you could hand a CUDA kernel to that object, and that object would ensure that the kernel was executed on the GPU and its result was returned back to the, uh, the computation on the CPU side. Um, after working on that, we then started working on a library called HPX Compute, which is, I believe, in the main repo of HPX, but it's in its own little section. And this library takes it a little, kind of integrates things a little bit tighter. This library, I believe you can compile with MVCC, and it will allow you to write simple CUDA kernels in the form of lambdas, and it will launch those kernels on the GPU, and then you can synchronize again with the CPU side. And there's some more uh, fancy things that we did over there, but I unfortunately was not working directly on it, so I'm probably not the best person to describe it. But as GPUs have gotten a little bit more able to compile C++ code, we've been able to do more and more to integrate them into HPX in general. But if you have uh, GPU code or GPU kernels already come, you know, already pre-made, we can definitely handle that, and we can already handle movement of data uh, from the CPU side to the GPU side using standard um, algorithms. So, or some of the standard algorithms, such as like copy. Okay. We'll switch topic to ask questions regarding the history and the structure of the project. Uh, when did the HPX project got started? Ah, so I believe it was around 11 years ago now. Essentially, Hartman uh, started, uh, was working with a collaborator here at LSU. And between the two of them, they kind of came up with the ideas 
uh, that kind of underpin HPX. And Hartman sat down and was like, oh, well, I'll start implementing that. And that's kind of how it all began. Since then, we made the decision to uh, follow the C++ standard, which was a pretty major decision for us. At the time, we didn't think of it as that big of a deal, but we just we realized, hey, the abstractions that we're exposing to implement this new paradigm is basically you know, what's already being exposed by C++11, so why not just use that? And over the years, we've had uh, several people, um, several prominent members of our team uh, join us and contribute, and we've uh, grown ever since. Okay, so it's still a team at LSU that develops H HPX. Is there any other community in other universities or any other developers outside of LSU contributing to the project? Yes. So one of the developers of HPX, uh, Thomas Heller, we actually brought him over to LSU several years ago um, when before he had graduated. And he worked with our team And when he returned to Germany, he uh, brought HPX with him. And so he started developing HPX in Nuremberg. And over the years, we've kind of brought other people into our orbit. And so now we have people working on HPX in a few German universities and the Swiss National Computing Center, as well as we work with people on HPX projects with some of the national labs here in the U.S. Okay. And... With all of that, uh, what kind of funding do you get for the HPX project and how is it used? So we, uh, at LSU, um, the funding that we get is mostly through grants. And that funding is used to essentially hire uh, both people and teams to continue development. Um, most of that goes to uh, hiring grad students and postdocs as well as now we have several staff members who are working full-time on HPX, which is really exciting. Okay. Do you have any contributions from outside of academia? Hmm. Not, no, not yet. At the moment, most of our collaborators are working in either traditional academia, such as like the university or in academic affiliated institutions, such as uh, the Swiss National Computing Center. Um, that's where most of our developers are located at the moment, which makes sense. Okay. You could mention Google Summer of Code. That's true. We've also worked or participated in the, G the Google Summer of Code uh, program. Uh, this is a program operated by Google where open source teams around the world uh, can apply to um, become mentors of students. And if your organization is accepted, projects that you have suggested will be posted, well, will be linked to from Google's uh, site, and students can apply to work on those projects. And this is a really awesome program because essentially uh, students from around the world can get in contact with all these open source projects also all over the world. And we've participated in that uh, for several years. And in, in that sense, Google has <laughs> supported HBX development as well. Okay. Under which license is HBX distributed? And is there any reason for this choice of license? Yes. So HBX is distributed under the Boost software license. 
the boost license is a very liberal license. Basically, it says, you know, you can use this where you want, however you want, just leave this copyright at the top and leave our names there and you're good. So this is a very important decision for us, especially because this is what allows other people to kind of become familiar uh, with our work. We are situated in uh, Louisiana, which is not necessarily, you know, on the world stage for <laughs> distributed and high performance computing. And so in order for us to kind of get our ideas and and to showcase our work, we think it's very important that we make our code open source so that way people can become familiar with it and look into it and, and, and work with our stuff. Uh, this has become important for, you know, our work in the standardization process because we're able to go there and say, hey, you know, we've, you know, we were looking at, you know, one of the uh, standards proposals and we implemented it. You can see the code here. And when we, you know, write papers and, you know, people are like, oh, well, how did you really do that? And you say, oh, look, the code's all here. You can look at it. You can download it. You can, you know, work with it. And this, you know, removes the barrier that can kind of come into play when, you know, you have a company, for instance, that's looking to, you know, to improve their process, right? And they're not, they're not going to take, they're going to be disinclined to take a risk on a piece of software that they can't see, or they have to, you know, release it open source. And this way they're able to just have no pressure and to look at it, learn from it, and hopefully contribute back to it. If anyone of our audience would be interested to get involved into HPX, which skills would be required to contribute to the project? So naturally, uh, C++ is something that's very helpful when you start working with HPX. But uh, we have a very open community and we are, as we are an academic here, institution here at LSU, we have pretty good resources in order to help train people. So the biggest thing that you need really to join our group is really a strong interest in self-guided learning. We have several resources that we kind of provide to people. And yeah, if, if you're a type of person who likes to, you know, dig into things yourself and kind of see like what's going on and just need a community of people to kind of help you guide you through, uh, we, that's what we do. Okay. A lot of tools you use in science are either open source or free software. How do you feel about FLUS and what is your vision about FLUS and its importance for the openness of science? I think FLUS is critical for the future of many scientific fields. If you look at fields which are utilizing simulations as kind of a core as a, of their research, you really need to be able to see what their codes are doing in order to verify their results. And I think that open source plays a huge role in the first place in kind of this sort of, you know, verification, which is a key part of what, you know, science is, is being able to, you know, replicate these experiments that people elsewhere have done in order to ensure the validity of 
of the claims that this team is making. In a more general sense, it's really important to distribute. It's very difficult to kind of go back and have to re-implement everything. I mean, I think, you know, Gnu had the, the, the right idea from the sense that, you know, having, you know, every single person trying to write their own operating system is, is not going to work. Like, we need kind of a basis in order to kind of build, you know, science forward. And I think science kind of works in the same way in that, you know, we need tools that are out there that, that allow us to experiment. I think that, you know, when you look at something like funding, um, I think that the, these national funding agencies are really starting to narrow down on, you know, requiring that the software projects that they fund be open source, because when those projects are open source, that's what allows more development and more ideas and more people to contribute to those areas. And so instead of just having this, you know, this project that you develop and you write this application and you get this one result, and then it kind of, you know, dies with, you know, after the grad student graduates, it allows these ideas to be out there and for other people to then pick up the mantle and then continue uh, contributing in that field. Do you think that using FLOSS can have negative impacts on science? So the, the tricky thing with FLOSS is it doesn't the business model becomes a little bit more tricky. So, I mean, one thing that you could argue, I think, is that there's some, by having all these developments being done open source, you're then not able to kind of monetize the, the results that you're producing because, um, well, anybody can download this and, and work on it, um, which you might be able to argue provides a lower quality result. However, I think in the context of science, that's, well, so, I mean, one thing that you can look at is, you know, there's now several types of codes that industry doesn't develop. Only the National Science Foundation is funding this work. And so if the National you know, Science Foundation no longer, you know, gets their funding cut or whatever, well, that work is just, it's now done. It's, it's there's no one funding that. So I, I guess kind of one thing that, that could be considered bad is that it does kind of interrupt the way, you know, the, the economic interests in there. However, I think that, you know, part of the reason why we fund, you know, we fund science is specifically because industry is not always the best driver of where research needs to go. And I think that, By providing these new tools, we get better ideas. And most of the time, I believe that those ideas that come out of open source software or that are built upon open source software end up being much more valuable than if we would have just tried to cap it off at just, you know, a simulation to, you know, predict the weather. It's much, I think we get much more benefit by having some of these models open source and then saying, ah, I, I can use this model, which predicts the weather to then couple it with waves and tides. And that's going to be able to give me much better predictions about, you know, coastal flooding or something like that. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts there. Okay, great.
We're almost done for the interview today, and we'll proceed with some of our classic quick questions that we, uh, that we ask all of our interviewees. In recent years, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? Ooh. Um, well, I'm from LSU, so I'm going to say uh, the LIGO gravity wave detection. <laughs> that was yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, a good one. <laughs> and uh, what is your favorite, favorite text processing tool? Oh, I'm a Vim guy. <laughs> okay. Okay, that will conclude our questions. Thank you, Adrian. Is there anything else you would like to share with us? Only uh, feel free to contact us either at our website, stellargroup.org, uh, or um, on IRC. We're at the, on the Stellar channel uh, on Freenode. And yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Thank you, Adrian, for your time and this interview. Bye. 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 This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is on a new location. We moved it to flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page, where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. For our last episode of our high-performance computing series, we will interview Carola Kayser about the coastal modeling project STORM. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.